I want to welcome you again to our Easter Sunday celebration here at Baraka Bible Church. Uh, I want to especially welcome any guests that are with us today. Um, some of you may have been invited and joined us. Some of you may have just found us and, and showed up today. But regardless, we're thankful you're here. Whether you believe everything we've been singing and saying about Jesus and you're here and ready to celebrate Christ with us, or whether you're, you think we're a little bit crazy, and that's okay. And maybe you're a little bit skeptical or a lot skeptical about what we've been saying about Christ already today, or whether you're just kind of casually curious, or maybe you were just dragged here against your will, kicking and screaming. Anybody want to raise your hand? No, no, don't do that. That's okay. It, do, it doesn't matter. We are genuinely honored to have you with us today, and, and we want you to feel very warmly welcomed here, with no strings attached. Um, we won't single you out or embarrass you any more than I have by asking you to raise your hand if you're dragged here kicking and screaming, but... Um, no, we, we are thankful to have you here today with us. We, we love this community. Um, we, we are committed to it. Uh, the name of our church is Baraka Bible Church, which is probably not a word you use in everyday conversation. Uh, but the word Baraka means blessing in Hebrew, which is the original language of the Old Testament. And so we want to be a blessing to this neighborhood and to the surrounding community here. And we want to be a blessing to you today as well. Um, we're, we're kind of a no-frills church. Um, there are no helicopter Easter egg drops after the service or anything like that today. Or uh, We don't have any elaborate productions. We, we don't have a barista in the back making fancy coffee drinks. Uh, we don't even have cup holders for your cheap QT coffee or something if you brought that in. But we, we, we study the Bible together. We pray together. We sing together. We, we reach out to our community and around the world together. We love one another. That's, that's basically what we do as a church. Um, and, and so I invite you to participate again with us next week uh, and every week. But we're, we're studying through the book of Genesis, the first book in the Bible right now on Sunday mornings, and uh, seeing the beginning of everything. And uh, so join us next week. We also want to invite you, maybe we, uh, we have a church picnic coming up on May 5th in a couple weeks. And so if it's a beautiful day like today, it will be just wonderful to be together and, and playing outside, eating meal together. So that will be right after the service on May 5th. But we do believe, we believe that this book is the single most important book in the whole world. And, and we're not embarrassed to say that, and whether you believe that or not, that's okay. But God has seen fit, we believe God has seen fit to preserve His Word to us in these pages. And so for the next several minutes, we want to give our careful attention to that Word uh, today And so, every Easter Sunday I can remember, probably not even just here, but I don't know that I've ever been to a, a, an Easter service, whether I've preached or whether I've just been there worshiping with the congregation, that's been in any passage that wasn't in the New Testament. Um, so, usually we're looking at, at New Testament h- historical accounts of Jesus' death and resurrection in the Gospels, Matthew Mark, Luke, or John, or we're looking at other New Testament writings that speak to the meaning and the significance of Jesus' resurrection. But today we're doing something a little bit different. Um, I, I want to reference a passage in the New Testament first, in 1 Corinthians 15, which is a passage we often go to on Easter Sunday. 1 Corinthians 15, which Paul is explaining the full significance of the resurrection of Christ. But he's reminding the church at Corinth there that the gospel he preached to them, proclaimed to them, and the gospel that they believed, the word gospel just means good news, it's good news concerning Jesus, he says this is that gospel, and he gives a shorthand summary of the gospel, and he says that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Now the New Testament's obviously still being written as Paul writes that letter to the Corinthians. So the scriptures he's talking about is what we call the Old Testament, the first part of the Bible. And so, so the death, burial, resurrection of Jesus, what Paul is looking back on is actually foretold long ago in the Old Testament. That's what Paul's saying. And so we read in John 20 just a moment ago, the last verse, and that's why I selected John 20 to read this morning is because he says, the Scriptures said that he must rise from the dead. And he's talking about the Old Testament. And so this morning, we're going to go to one of several places we could go to in the Old Testament that that prophesies, anticipates these history-changing events 
of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus from the dead. And so if you, again, if you have your Bible, if you can look on with somebody next to you, if you want to get a, get a Bible app real quick on your phone, that's okay. And, uh, but we want you to be in Isaiah chapter 53 this morning. Isaiah 53. If you open your Bible kind of right in the middle, you'll almost be in Isaiah. Maybe you'll open to Jeremiah, go left, and you're, you're just one too far. Uh, but Isaiah, big book right in the middle of the Bible. And so, listen, in some ways, this passage intimidates a preacher. It does me, anyway. Uh, this is the chapter in the Bible to explain what happened on the cross. And the reason I say that is because the New Testament writers were constantly going back to this chapter and referencing it directly and certainly alluding to it over and over and over again. And so it really is the basis for their understanding of what was accomplished by Jesus' death and resurrection. And so, as a preacher standing before this monumental text, I see here that there is no way I can possibly squeeze everything that, that is here into one sermon, unless you want to just stay here all day. Nobody wants to skip Easter lunch. I know, there's some good ham and deviled eggs and whatever else is awaiting you today. Sorry if you're going to McDonald's, but it's fine too. Um, but, but, the, but not only is there so much here to see and, and to un, that we could draw out from there, there's so much to feel here. I mean, there, there's more than I can possibly express. And, and so I, I say that just to communicate, hopefully, some sense of the solemnity of what you're looking at here in Isaiah 53. We are, as it were, standing on holy ground this morning as we come to this passage. And so in this passage, Isaiah is prophesying first to Israel, God's chosen nation in the original context, and he's prophesying about this coming, he calls the servant of the Lord. Behold my servant. That's the very first uh, verse of, of, in chapter 52, verse, verse 12, or 13, excuse me. And so there's this servant of the Lord, this mysterious figure that's going to come in the future and is going to bring God's salvation. That's what this chapter's about. And so in the New Testament, this servant of the Lord is clearly identified as Jesus. But Isaiah is writing over 700 years before Christ came. And so he's looking into the future. God's giving him this revelation, whether, whether he has a vision of the cross, possibly, or whether God's just giving him this, this, this information, this revelation concerning his servant that's going to come and bring his salvation. And, it's, and again, it's clearly over and over and over in the New Testament. The writers are saying, that's Jesus, that's Jesus. And so, Isaiah 53, which really starts, as I said, back in chapter 52. Um, the chapter divisions were given much later. But it, it, is, it is the most well-known of what we call the servant songs of Isaiah. So there are these four songs or poems that, that Isaiah, uh, we, that are recorded for us here. And they're, they're all pointing to this coming promised deliverer. And the deliverance he's going to bring. And so, there's this last song is the kind of the climax of these. And it, it's, it has five stanzas. There's three verses each. And so, all we can do this morning is give kind of a bird's eye view, 40,000 foot elevation view of, of this text. And allow it to point to its fulfillment in Jesus Christ. And so, that's what we're going to do this morning. One other thing I want to say before we get here and walk through the passage together is this, is that what, we're, what we read here was absolutely shocking and hard to believe for the first readers. And I would say also for modern readers. In the, in the original context, Israel was in exile to Babylon. There, at, at the time this was written, and so they, they just wanted deliverance from Babylonian captivity. That's all they were looking for. They wanted to go home. They wanted a strong military or political deliverer to come and, 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 and set them free and take them home and, and bring this, their nation peace and stability, something they were desperately longing for. And God would eventually graciously provide that deliverance from Babylon. But they had no category for the type of deliverance that is spoken of here. And it's deliverance from sin. They're not thinking like that. They didn't see their need for this type of deliverance. 
They didn't, they couldn't understand the manner in which this deliverance was promised to come. This one who's pierced and crushed and afflicted, yet ultimately he's going to be high and lifted up and exalted. They, they didn't understand that. They didn't, they couldn't get their minds around the type of deliverer. Someone who'd be unimpressive and ordinary and rejected and despised. So they, they, they just, they didn't, they didn't get it. They didn't like it. They didn't believe it. And you can see this anticipated in verse 1 of chapter 53. Who has believed this? Who has believed this? And in a sense they're saying, who can see that this is the arm of the Lord? The arm of the Lord is it's representative of the strong power of God, the saving power of God. Nobody thinks God's power when they look at this servant of the Lord as he's described here. So they're saying, who... Who could conceive of this? Who could imagine this? They didn't believe it in Isaiah's day. They didn't believe it in Jesus' day when He came. Most people don't believe it in our own day. Do they? Most people don't see that salvation from sin is their greatest need. We we think the need is is just a, a relationship to be repaired. We think our need is more money or need is rest or need is something else. But we don't see this as being our greatest need. They don't see, most people don't see how God's revealed plan of salvation from sin, how it makes any sense. And they certainly don't see any need for the type of Savior that God has provided. And maybe that's you today. And that's, that's, but I pray that you'll consider what we see today in this monumental chapter. So let's walk through the song together, stanza by stanza, stanza, see what God's revealed about the servant's suffering, Jesus' death, and ultimate resurrection. I know it's Easter, it's not Good Friday today. And so you're wearing pastels, you got, uh, we want bright, light, hope, life, and that's what we're going to see today. We're going to see that come through in this passage. But it is against this backdrop of the suffering servant. And what's, what preceded the empty tomb. And so we're going to see both today. Let's behold Christ here today. So the first stanza, we'll just walk through these together this morning. First thing we see is that the suffering, or excuse me, the servant suffered violently. Violently. Look at chapter 52, verse 13 with me. Right away though, we, we see this victory. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. Wisely, the, the idea of this word, successfully. He's, he's going to be victorious. He's going to get the job done. My servant will win. He shall be high and lifted up, and he shall be exalted. So right away we get this glimpse of resurrection, victory, coming exaltation. We're going to see it more clearly at the end of this uh, song. But then, verse 14, says that when they looked at him, they were, my translation says, astonished. Some of your texts, your versions may say appalled. That's a good word. Or horrified. This is a very, very strong word. It means literally to be shattered. Uh, it, was, it was used of cities when they were invaded and, and destroyed and just reduced to rubble. That's, that's, that was how it was to describe a city. But when it was used of a person, it, it meant to be so shattered by something that you're looking at that it actually makes you want to vomit. That's the idea of this word. That's how it's used elsewhere. And so what is it that makes them so shattered they want to, they're, they're, they're nauseous and want to throw up? Verse 14. His appearance was so marred, so disfigured, beyond human semblance, so here's what's happened. The servant of the Lord has been so disfigured by violence and torture that he doesn't even look human anymore. And to look at him is to be, again, nauseated, to be sick at your stomach. Of course, we know this is exactly what happened to Jesus. He suffered violently. He was stripped naked. He was beaten repeatedly. He was lashed over and over and over again violently. Crown of thorns were pressed into his skull. That was all before he was crucified. And so what was left of Jesus' body when they were done with him, it hardly looked human. Brutal, violent suffering. Yet even so, look at verse 15, and this is what Israel didn't understand. This was so Jesus could 
The text says, sprinkle many nations. Now I realize that may not just pop out to you as what's being communicated there, but that's the language of sacrifice in the Old Testament. The, the blood of the sacrificial animal that was making atonement for sin was sprinkled on the altar to, 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 so that sin could be dealt with. And so what looked like this violent murder of this helpless victim proved to be the powerful deliverance of redeemed people from every nation. He says this is, this is this victory. There's this, there's, so there's this violent suffering, apparent defeat, but it will give way to incredible success and honor and triumph. Why? Because Christ is risen and He's exalted. Alright, we're getting to the end too quickly. We'll get there. So that's the first thing. He suffered violently. Second stanza, in verses 1 to 3 of chapter 53, the servant suffered viciously. Viciously. Verse 2, look there with me. For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. Now that's emphasizing his apparent vulnerability, his fragility. So you can, you can get that image. Israel's, Israel's looking for this ferocious warrior, and, but this promised servant of the Lord seems by all appearances to be this inconsequential little seedling that's just barely poking out through the dirt. So some of you may have already planted your gardens and then you're probably regretting it when you saw the temperatures, but uh, where, where you, you, maybe if you planted a week ago, you have those little seedlings that are popping out, tiny little roots, and you know that anything can destroy those little fresh, tender green plants. And so you protect them and treat them like babies and, um, and, and hoping to get some produce off of those things. But th- this, is, this, is what he, this is what he was like. But not only that, he had no form or majesty, the text says, that we should look at him. He wasn't attractive. He had no beauty that we should desire him. I mean, nothing about him made him stand out as being particularly attractive or even noticeable. He was just blended in. Jesus, before he was beaten to a pulp and marred beyond human semblance, he, he was just unimpressive. He's just Mr. Ordinary. Nothing, nothing, your eyes would just kind of glide right over him. He, he wouldn't be picked first for dodgeball or anything like that. He's not like King Saul and King David who were known for their good looks and handsome appearance. No, this servant's just, he's just kind of Mr. Everyman. No big deal. You couldn't pick him out of a crowd. But he goes more. He goes further. Verse 3. He was despised. He was despised. It means to be taken lightly. To be made light of, to be scorned or ridiculed. He, he was rejected, and men hide their faces from him. So, I mean, rejection. Listen, rejection is such a terrible thing, isn't it? It is, it is a painful experience to be rejected. And you've no doubt experienced that in some form or another. But here, the Savior, bearing the pain, the vicious pain of rejection. A man of sorrows, he goes on, and acquainted with grief. That doesn't simply mean that he knew what it was like to be sad every once in a while. He understands. No, this, this, he was a man of sorrows. This characterized his life. He was like a, his soul was like this sponge that just was saturated and soaked up with sorrow. And he's acquainted with grief. It doesn't mean it was just an occasional you know, passerby or someone who stopped over in, in the house of his soul for a moment and went on. No, he, he was his constant companion. Grief. And then he goes further. And we esteemed him not. That's an accounting word. And so if you, if you, if you could think everything about the world's perception of the Savior, His appearance, His, his weakness, where He grew up, and Nazareth, if, if they could if they could input all of that into this spreadsheet on their computer or something like that, they, they put all of that data in there, all of those lines of data, all the things that, that they see about His appearance, and, and you put a little formula in that bottom cell, you add it all up, and the sum total that they come up with is this, is He's a zero. He's, he is, he's worth nothing. That was how He was esteemed. That's the, the idea of this word. He's inconsequential, unimportant, worthless. This is how they saw him. Again, what do we know from the gospel accounts? This is exactly, again, what happens when Jesus comes. 
He's Jesus, what, of Nazareth. There was a, 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 a Nazareth, with the, there was a common expression in Philip said these words, can, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Backwoods, Nazareth. He, he lived most of his life in obscurity. For the three years of his public ministry, he was, he was constantly attacked and mocked. And, and during, right up, and, and they were scorning him right up to his dying breath. In Matthew, 9, or Matthew 27, excuse me, Matthew 27, we, we see that account of Jesus hanging suspended on that cross. And just listen to what, what, what we see here, the, this picture. Get a sense of this. Those who passed by, just people walking by, all the pilgrims coming in, those who passed by derided Him, wagging their heads and saying, listen to this taunt, You who destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. They're laugh- this is hilarious to them. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. So just the normal people, this is how they're speaking. So also, he says, the chief priests with the scribes and elders. So the religious leaders, they mocked him saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. He is the King of Israel. <laughs> so funny to them. Let him come down now from the cross and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he even desires him. For he said, I am the Son of God. And not only that, the robbers who were crucified with him, the text says, also reviled him in the same way. So you see, this is what Isaiah is saying. He was ridiculed, he was despised, he was rejected, he was esteemed as nothing. And this is exactly what Jesus endured. So he suffered violently, he suffered viciously. Third, third stanza here in verse 4. The, Lord, the servant suffered vicariously. This is a big word. A kind of word we probably don't hear or use very often. It's a theological word we, we, we use to describe the, the death of Christ. But vicariously, uh, maybe you hear it in this context. Maybe you hear somebody say like, that parent just seems to be living vicariously through their child. You know, we, like, we whisper behind their back or something like that. What are we saying? Maybe we're talking about like a middle-aged father who used to you know, play high school football or something like that. And just picture Uncle Rico, if you know Napoleon Dynamite. And, but this, this dad who's trying to, to, to um, fulfill his own unrealized dreams of athletic stardom by pushing his son uh, to, to, to succeed on the football field or something like that. So we say that father's living vicariously through his son. It's not a good thing. But the, the basic idea of this word means simply this, to, to act in the place of someone else. To act in the place of someone else. It's to, it's to take their spot. To be their substitute. That's what vicarious means. And so the, the servant of the Lord in Isaiah 53 will suffer vicariously. He is a substitute for others. For the guilty. Who's not going to suffer for his wrongs. He's going to suffer for the wrongs of other people. So ten times we're told in this passage uh, on Friday night and we had our Good Friday gathering, we, we talked about this and we looked at each of these. That there are these. You see it in the pronouns of this passage. But ten times here, the, the servant takes upon himself that which is not his, but is ours. And so look at verse 4. He, first there's this exclamation, Surely! This is good. It, it's, this, it's this exclamation of one who once esteemed him as nothing, as not. Verse 3, but he, but he said, now I see the truth. Surely, this is actually what was going on. We thought he was nothing. We, we thought he was nobody. We didn't see it before. Now we see what's happening. Surely, he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. So the, the misery and grief he carried wasn't his own. It was ours. It was caused by our sin. And we talked about this Friday night. He carried the full weight of that. Took it off of us. Carried it upon Himself. The full weight of it. But we didn't get it. It says, yet yet, we esteemed Him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. 
Oh, we thought he was cursed by God. We thought he was abandoned by God. We thought he was deserted by God. We thought he was being punished by God for all of the wrong things that he'd done, for blasphemy, for treason. That's, that's what we thought. We thought he was being punished for his wrongdoing, not for ours. Verse 5, But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with His wounds, we are healed. We deserve the wounding. We deserved to be crushed because of our sin. We deserve to be pierced because of our transgressions. We deserve to take the curse of God for our sin. But Jesus, vicariously, taking our place, suffered and died for us. There was a penalty for sin that had to be paid. And as we sang a moment ago, Jesus paid it all. It wasn't His debt to pay. It wasn't His penalty. It was ours. But He took it upon Himself. And there's a summary in verse 6. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned every one to His own way. But the Lord has laid on Him the iniquity of us all. So we're the ones who've strayed. We're the ones who've rejected God's authority. We're the ones who've declared our independence from God and said, we'll do it our way, thank you. And that's the essence of sin. And, but all of that sin, all of our iniquity, all of our transgression, they were laid vicariously on Jesus and He took the punishment we deserved. He was truly, perfectly, wholly innocent. Yet, He willingly carried our iniquities and was condemned in our place. That brings us to the fourth stanza. Two more. So the servant suffered viciously, violently, vicariously, and here we see voluntarily. Voluntarily. Verse 7. You see, Jesus was oppressed. You see that word? Oppressed and afflicted. Look at verse 8. It was by oppression and judgment he was taken away. So just stop there. We'll get to the voluntary part in a moment. But just know, this was an absolute miscarriage of justice. There were, there were these trumped up charges, of, of false charges that were brought against him. I mean, it's like a kangaroo court. It's a travesty of human justice. Why do I say that? Because verse 9, he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. He was treated like a criminal when he had done nothing wrong. Nothing that he was accused of. But this is, this is what really stands out in this stanza. So just put yourself, just imagine you're, you're in this courtroom, you're defending uh, your honor, your reputation, you've been accused of something you didn't do, and it's so clear this is this travesty of, of injustice that's unfolding in front of you, and you're just ready to scream, and you, but you know that's not going to make it worse, so you're, you're, you're just undone. So this is Jesus, He's innocent. He knows His suffering is unjust. And he knows that this, 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 this human justice is moving towards death. So he knows all this is unfolding. But what is he? He doesn't fight. He doesn't fight. He suffers willingly, voluntarily. Jesus is falsely accused. He's stripped naked. He's beaten. He's mocked. They dress him up. They play dress up with him. They put a scepter in his hand, a robe on his back, and thorn of crowns on his head and they're just laughing and carrying on and and taunting Jesus. He's done nothing wrong, but all the while, Jesus is silent. The Gospels over and over make this very clear. He's silent. He's submissive, humble, resolved. He's willing. He's not kicking and screaming and thrashing and threatening everybody. Just wait. I'm going to nuke you guys. And he could have. Verse 7. Look at the text again. Isaiah 53. Verse 7. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. His death is absolutely voluntary. 
John 10, verse 18, Jesus says to His disciples, No one takes My life from Me. I lay it down of My own accord. Now you may be thinking, well, that's, that's nice to say, but there have been plenty of voluntary deaths. And we probably know of some of those. Not really. I, I know, you're thinking, you, you're thinking of scenarios, you know, I know people that have given their lives to rescue others, and to, so some, you know, they're giving their life in exchange, take a bullet, that kind of a thing. Listen, we can, we can, in a sense, choose the circumstances of our deaths, but we don't choose to die or not to die. We can't do that. You are going to die. Happy Easter, you know. <laughs> I mean, it's happening. It's going to happen. You're, it's unavoidable. But this is the difference. Jesus did not have to die at all. De- death had no claim over Him. Eternal life was, was all He deserved. So Jesus Christ's death is truly the only voluntary death in that sense. Now do you realize what that says to us? What I hope that we can, I can communicate and what you may have already seen. What could have kept the Son of God on that cross? What could possibly have been strong enough to keep His limbs attached to those timbers? This is the Maker of the universe. You think nails are going to do that? Or really, really long spikes? Or ropes? Or chains? No. Nothing can keep Him there. There's not a chance. Nothing, what? But His love kept Him there. This is this glorious, His voluntary suffering is this statement of His love for us. The voluntariness of Jesus' suffering and death shows the depths of God's love for us. Jump down to the last stanza. We'll get here in just a moment. But in verses 10 to 11, it says that after Jesus, after the servant, whom we know as Jesus, atones for sin, the text says, he shall see his offspring. That's the redeemed. That's the people that he saves by his sacrifice. Then in verse 11, it says, out of the, anguishes, out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. Those, those connect together. And so he, he sees the results of his suffering, and what? He's satisfied. That's so profound when you consider, as we've been looking at, the depths of Christ's sufferings. Leaving the eternal glories of heaven, coming into this suffering-filled world, facing all of the afflictions that we face, living in this fallen world. But even beyond that, he's unjustly oppressed He's, he's being disfigured beyond human likeness. He's being crushed. He's being pierced. He's bearing the full weight of our sins, enduring the fury of God's wrath. In a sense, He's lost everything. Yet the risen Christ looks at you and me and He says, it's worth it. I am satisfied as I see my offspring. That's not a statement affirming our inner or outer uh, loveliness. That's this strong declaration of the enormity of God's undeserved love for us in Christ. The fact that the servant Jesus suffered and died voluntarily, willingly, is this exclamation point of God's love for you today. He loves you. He loves you. Not because you're so lovable, you're just so adorable. That's not it. It's not because you have your act together and so He just can't help but be proud of you. Now, Romans 5.8 says, what? God shows His love for us while we were yet sinners. While we were shaking our fist in His face because of our sin. Rebelling against Him by not doing what He wants us to do, living how He wants us to live. And, and, and even in that condition, Romans 5, it says, Christ willingly died for us. He died for us. Last stanza. Now we get to Easter. All right, it's here. All right, so pastels were appropriate. Um, the servant suffered victoriously. I would have really thrown you off if I didn't have a V word here, I know. 
and really messed you up. Verse 10 to 12 here. In this last stanza, we return to that, that opening theme of the song, this glorious exaltation of the servant of the Lord. And so verse 10, you may, may not stand out as that in verse 10, but listen, and, and I'll show you why. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. Now we say, well, that, that doesn't sound like glorious hope. Crushing and death and, and um, grief. But what that's saying is Jesus' suffering, His death, it was not just some unfortunate tragedy. No, this was God's plan and purpose being accomplished. It's, it was a huge success. It, it is, it is, his death for us is victory. So that, that's this statement on that. And the suffering and dying ends in resurrection triumph. Now, I realize you're going to look in Isaiah 53, 10 to 12, and you're going to say, I don't see the word resurrection one time. I don't see raised, I don't see third day, I don't see any of that language that you're telling me is here. Um, but, but its reality is clear and plain. And the New Testament writers affirm this. Verse 10, the second part of verse 10, he says, When his soul makes an offering for guilt, and so when that happens, which is what we've been talking about in the previous stanzas, when that happens, three things are going to result. Look at verse 10. One, he's going to, he's going to live to see his offspring. He's going to live to see Him. Those whom He saved by dying for them. His redeemed people. The church. Us. God's people. He's going to live to see that. Second, He will live a long time. It says He will prolong His days. Now by implication, He's going to live forever since once you've conquered death, you, 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 it cannot ever defeat you again. So He's crucified, risen again, conquered death, never to be defeated again. He's going to live forever. Third, God's purposes, His will, it will triumph in His hands. So He's going to, he's going to see success after, after he's, he's died. And so you take all of that together and there's this picture of this Messiah who was dead, but now He's alive. And He's victorious. And He's reigning as King of kings and Lord of lords. He's the one that we sang about. He's, he's the risen Lamb, the only one who's worthy to take the scroll of history and open its seals. He's risen. And so there's this glorious picture. And then verse 11, again, victory comes from death out of the anguish of His soul. Again, three things will happen. One, He's going to see and be satisfied. We talked about that already. Two, by, the, by His knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. He's going to justify, as some of your translations may say, many. And, and we, many here who know Christ, who are in Christ, we are living proof that Jesus is alive and is still doing this. And we've experienced this. And then He says, and He shall bear their iniquities. That's not just looking back to the moment that Jesus bore them on the cross. That's saying He's going to continue to bear them eternally. You will never have to bear your sins again if you are in Christ. And so this all... So he's, what He's saying in conclusion, he's, he's satisfied, we're justified, and all of our sins will be carried by another forever. We'll never have to bury, carry them again. Finally, in verse 12... God speaks again, Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong. I, uh, language may kind of trip you up, but it's just a statement, Christ is victorious. He's victorious. And those who are united to him by faith shall share in all of the eternal blessings that are, that are won by his saving work. And then he ends, Because... He has poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many. And get this, and he makes intercession for the transgressors. Now, I don't have time to we explain this, but in Hebrews chapter 7, verse 24 to 25, just listen to this in light of that last phrase of, of Isaiah 53. The writer of Hebrews says, Christ holds his priesthood permanently. Because, what? He lives forever. And then he says, Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him. Why? Since he always lives to make intercession for them. 
That the, 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 the risen Christ today is constantly pleading us before the Father, pleading the merits of His wounds before the Father. Constantly interceding, constantly standing in the place for us. Well, that last verse of, of, of Isaiah 53, verse 12, Jesus quotes that verse on the night that He was arrested. The night before He was crucified. So He's gathered with His disciples in the upper room and they're sharing that meal together. The disciples, they're clueless. They don't know what's going on. They don't know what's about to take place. They, they don't, they, Jesus has told them He's going to die. He's going to rise again. They don't get it. And so Jesus says to them, It is written. It is written. And He was numbered with the transgressors. What is he quoting? He's quoting Isaiah 53.12. Then he says to them, after he quotes Isaiah 53.12, I tell you, this Scripture must be fulfilled in me. So the, the very last night before his crucifixion, his mind's on Isaiah 53, and he looks to his disciples and he says, that's about to happen to me. So what does it mean to be numbered with, to be counted with? This is our word, the big V word we talked about earlier. Vicarious. It's, it's to be treated as. Jesus was treated as if He had done all the things that we had done. And what's the result? Verse 11, again, Isaiah 53. By His knowledge shall the righteous one, My servant, make many to be accounted righteous, justify many, and He shall bear their iniquities. What does that mean? I mean, if, if Jesus was treated as if He had done all of the things that we have done, and He was, then when you trust in Him, you are treated as if you had done all the things that He had done. Understand? You're treated in God's eyes as, as if you were as great and perfect and holy and righteous and good as Christ. Sin, listen, sin is you and me substituting ourselves for God. It's, it's, we're putting ourselves where only God should be, in charge of our lives. That's sin. Salvation is God substituting Himself for us. It's God putting Himself where only we should be, on the cross. Let me illustrate it this way. I hope this makes some sense. Just suppose your whole life was being recorded. This is not very far-fetched anymore, is it? <laughs> if you've got an Alexa or in your home or you carry a smartphone, or, you know, you've had the experience where you, you have a conversation and then you go to your computer and then on, you know, the little bar at the top has the advertisement for the exact same thing you were talking about. And you're like, this is weird. Uh, anyway, so, so, but imagine your whole life is, 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 is audio, video recording of everything, capturing every second of every minute of every day of your life. What you say, what you do, where you go, it's all, all being captured. And because of amazing technological advances, even your thoughts are recorded. Those, those things that you think, desire, but you don't act upon them or you don't say anything, even though you really want to, all of that is captured. This is like, this is big brother like we can't even conceive. Um... And so cameras, microphones, they're getting, getting all of that, storing all of it, and all of that information, all of that digital data, all that is dropped into this massive digital file. And one day, you're going to have to stand, and you know it, you're going to have to stand in the courtroom of God, and you're going to face this charge against you, sinner. And the Bible says to be guilty of one sin is to be guilty of all of it. And the, and the punishment for sin is eternal death, hell. So have that in mind. And the, and the judge is going to look at all of that evidence. He's going to put it up on the big screen, have the court clerk plug it into the computer and put it up there. And it's all going to be for everybody to see, for the judge to see. Your whole digital file, do you have a chance? No. I mean, you can put five minutes of footage of your life and you're toast. We all are. But you have, some of you, 30, 40, 50, 
80 years of footage. All the things that you did that you shouldn't have done. All the things that you didn't say that you should have said. All the angry outbursts. All the lustful thoughts. All the lies. All the gossip. All the selfishness. All of it. It's all there. And it will be there for God to judge openly. Listen. Jesus has a digital file too. And He's got His name on it. And all the footage of His life is there. All the words, all the actions, all the thoughts. And of course, there's nothing wrong on His. He's sinless. He's utterly sinless. His record is absolutely flawless, Scripture says. There was no deceit, no violence, no sin in Him. Listen, at the cross... What happened in this, as I'm folding with this illustration, Jesus exchanged His file for yours. So He, he changed the name on the file that has all the evidence of, of your sin on it, and He put His name on it. And He, and he took that file to the cross where God poured out all of his, of his wrath, just wrath, for all of the wrongs that you have done. Jesus took all of that upon Himself. He took the punishment in our place. And in exchange... He put His name on our file. And put our name, excuse me, on His file. See, I'm getting confused on that. So now, when God looks at us, He sees Christ's file, His record. He sees Christ's sinless record. That's illustrating what, what what He says in verse 11, Christ is what He's done to make many accounted as righteous before God. That's why God sees Christ's righteousness when He looks at those who trust in Him. We have Christ's file. We have His righteousness. We have His perfect obedience. God does not then. He will not. He cannot hold our sin against us any longer if we are in Christ. Why? Because He's already punished Jesus for our sin. There's no double punishment. It's all been poured out on Christ. Paul sums it up in a very succinct way in 2 Corinthians 5.21. He says, For our sake, He did this for us. He, God, made Him, Jesus, to be sin. to, to, To take our file. He made Him to be sin who knew no sin. So that in Him, in Christ, we might become the righteousness of God. We might get the sinless record. Christian, I mean, this is, this is glorious news, isn't it? I mean, this is what we, we love and we sing and we celebrate and we're going to do that and we're going to sing in a moment. If you're not a Christian, and we are, again, we're honored to have you here, we're not going to embarrass you now or anything like that, I would just say, Jesus offers to you this same exchange. He does. If only you'll trust in Jesus and what He's provided through His death and resurrection. One last real quick story. And it's in the book of Acts, um, in Acts chapter 8, there's a guy named Philip. Philip, Philip, his life was radically changed after Jesus rose from the dead. The guy is just like lit on fire. And he's going around that region preaching the crucified and risen Christ and and and. Tons of people are coming to believe in Jesus. Lives are being changed. And, and in the midst of that fruitful ministry, God just sends him out into the desert in the middle of nowhere. Like, what, what the, you, I would be thinking, why in the world? Right now. But he, he comes upon this man from Ethiopia. He's a wealthy man. He's like the, kind of the, the treasurer of this queen from Ethiopia. He's sitting in his chariot in the middle of the desert, and he's, he's reading out loud from the Hebrew Scriptures. Well, we saw Old Testament. And so Philip approaches this man. He realizes that what this man is reading is Isaiah 53. And, and this passage we've been looking at. So Philip asks him, do you understand what you're reading? And uh, the Ethiopian's like, how can I possibly understand who this is talking about? So Philip's like, can I explain it to you? And so he hops up in the chariot with this, uh, with this man. And Philip explains Jesus to him from Isaiah 53. He shares the Gospel. He shares the good news of Jesus Christ with him. And then the text says, And the Ethiopian said, Look, water, 
What prevents me from being baptized? The guy's like, I'm in. I believe. And Philip said, if you believe with all of your heart, you may. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And then he was baptized. The last thing we know about this Ethiopian, this nameless man, we don't know his name, but we know this, he went on his way rejoicing. That's the last thing the Scriptures say. I've labored to sort of climb in the chariot with you this morning. I realize you weren't probably reading in Hebrew the book of Isaiah 53 this morning when you came in, but I've labored to show you how Isaiah 53 points to Jesus and the salvation that He's provided. He's holding this gift out to you today. And the question is, will, will you believe? Will you trust in Him? Will you stop trying to pretend that uh, the file doesn't exist? Stop trying to hide the evidence that's in that file. Hoping it will just kind of go away. Acting like maybe your good will be enough to outweigh the bad and maybe you'll catch God on a, you know, catch Him off guard. Pretending that maybe this isn't really your greatest need. That you have more important needs than, than salvation from sin. Will you, will you instead trust in Jesus? Trust Him. That what He's done to pay the price for your sin and, and declare you righteous is the most important thing you need. And He offers that to you today. And you can lay hold of it by faith today. You can go on your way rejoicing today, believing that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And I pray that you would. Remember the Gospel we started here. 1 Corinthians 15, Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. He was buried and He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, in accordance with Isaiah 53. Like Paul, I've labored to proclaim that message to you today. And would you, like the Corinthians, as he says, receive it and believe, trust in Him today. Let me pray. Father, we come before you with full, thankful hearts and, and we thank you for this reality that Christ is risen indeed. And thank you that Jesus, you've dealt with all of our sin and that all of the punishment that we deserve for our sins has been paid in full. You did that voluntarily as this great demonstration of your love for us. And I pray that if anyone here today that has questions or uh, is interested that they would talk with somebody today and, and that we, there could be a conversation and, and, and like that that Philip had in the chariot explaining these things more. And if there's others, maybe that they, they say, I, I believe that you would bring them from out of darkness into light. What a glorious way to celebrate this Easter and they could go on their way rejoicing with this new life in Christ. We join with Paul and say, Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.